right, what's up, y'all? This is John Lorant, and this is episode 96, Virtual Reality and Anesthesia Education, Simvana with Peter Stallo. This show is coming out in early August of 2023. First up, I want to give a quick heads up that our team from Maine Medical Center, where I currently serve as Chief CRNA, will be at the American Association of Nurse Anesthesiology Annual Congress in a couple of weeks in Seattle. So if you're headed to AANA's annual Congress this year, be sure to swing by the exhibit hall and check out the main health booth. My friends and colleagues, April Burgoyne, Kat Godfrey, and Steve Bresniak are going to be there to tell you all about career opportunities at our Level 1 Trauma Center, Maine Medical Center, and other Maine Health Hospitals. We've got everything from independent CRNA-only practices to a high-acuity Level 1 Trauma Center within Maine Health. So if you're interested in finding out more about what life looks like in the upper right-hand corner pocket of the United States... Come check us out. (laughs) We're a long way from a lot of things, but we're also not that far away. We've got a beautiful coastline. We're two hours north of Boston. Uh, Maine is an incredible place. It's something that I discovered as I became a CRNA. I had never been to Maine prior to going to anesthesia school when I was on the job search to become a CRNA. And uh, this is where we've landed. So we're going to be at Annual Congress. Come check us out. Hear what kind of opportunities we have. And I also believe that Peter Stallo with Simvana, who we're talking with today on the show, will also be at Annual Congress. So be sure to swing by and tell him that you listened to this episode and see what Simvana is about in person. All right. This show is very interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm stoked to talk with Peter Stallo. Peter created Prodigy Anesthesia back in 2004. This was probably the very first computer-based anesthesia educational and board prep study tool. Kids these days can't even imagine getting through anesthesia training without programs like this. And Prodigy is what Chris and I exclusively used to study for boards back in 2015. So I'm personally very grateful for Peter's development of that program. And on a side note, I've got no financial ties with Peter, Prodigy, or Simvana to disclose for this episode. This is just pure gratitude that I'm working with here. (laughs) I'm also stoked about what we're going to chat about today. Virtual reality simulation is likely going to become a central aspect of anesthesia training in the future. As the technology becomes more widely available and the user experience is further developed and refined, programs like Simvana will likely become ubiquitous in anesthesia training programs, just like with Prodigy over the last 20 years in programs similar to that. You know, online, digital study, board prep programs have become a core part of anesthesia trainees experience in the last, you know, 15 to 20 years. And I think that virtual reality is going to be the same way for trainees in the next 20 years, which reminds me of something that Elon Musk stated in a documentary about SpaceX. Now, I don't know how you feel about Twitter becoming X this summer or how Elon is reshaping that organization or, you know, many of his other you know, quirky and kind of far out decisions. But I think that we can agree on the fact that the man has created and led some remarkable organizations built on tenacious visions of what's possible for the future. In this documentary on SpaceX, Elon talked about how progress isn't inevitable. Some people just assume that the future is going to be better, you know, that space travel will become routine or, you know, Elon's vision that we're going to become a multi-planetary species or that we're going to solve global warming and climate change. You know, but these things won't actually happen unless individuals first imagine that they're possible and then put the work in to bring them into fruition. I always say that boards is an amazing finish line and culmination of years of preparation and hard work. And we're in that season again right now, this summer, as anesthesia programs and residencies wrap up, you know, between May and August. It's awesome to watch trainees make that transition from graduation into clinical practice. And so while boards is a finish line of sorts, it's also a starting line. It's when the start gun goes off on the rest of your career. It's this opportunity to pivot into what's next. And back in 2004, Just after Peter took boards, he got back to work. And at that point, he had two master's degrees in his pocket. And then he set about creating Prodigy Anesthesia, 
About a decade later, in 2014, he completed a graduate certificate in orchestral composition for film and games from Berklee College of Music, deepening his experience in terms of computer programming for Prodigy and eventually what would become Simvana. So in 2018, as he's going to talk about in this podcast, he began developing a virtual reality anesthesia training program that would go on to become Simvana. And then in 2021, a couple of years ago, Peter completed his third master's degree. Yes, his third from the University of Alabama in healthcare simulation. And he's currently working towards completing a PhD in healthcare simulation from Massachusetts General Hospital Institute for Health Professions. So Peter Stallo is someone who's been putting in the work. Uh, what I think is remarkable is that Peter's career has spanned the time frame from when anesthesia boards was a pen and paper exam through his development of one of the leading digital board preparation programs and now into the first virtual reality anesthesia simulation program. Peter has embodied that very idea that Elon Musk talked about, that progress is not inevitable. Having virtual reality as an available tool for anesthesia training, no matter where you are on the planet, whether you're in Cincinnati or Cape Town, it isn't automatically going to be a thing. Someone's got to put the time in, or better yet, a team of someone's, <laughs> which Peter will talk about in this show. And so with that, let's get to the story. Peter, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk with you. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. I'm excited about it. Yeah. So let's start with a brief overview of Simvana. There, there's so much to talk about. So I want to I want to pitch this to you as let's say I'm a professor at the uh, AANA's Assembly of Clinical and Didactic Educators Annual Conference. So I'm, I'm a professor at ACDE, and mm -hmm. I walk up to your booth in the exhibit hall. I've never heard of Simvana. What's your message? What are you going to tell me about it? Um, the first thing is that uh, Simvana is a completely immersive virtual reality anesthesia training simulation. So you'll actually put on a headset and be completely immersed immediately in a 400 square foot operating room. It's very difficult to convey that to what that feels like to someone who's never done virtual reality before, or they've only seen it, a 2D representation of it on a screen. And so the point that we always argue is you've got to put this headset on. I said, I'm not asking you to do anything else. I'm not, you don't even have to hand the controllers or manipulate any gaming controllers or anything. Don't worry about that. I just want you to put the headset on and see it and hear it. And we paid very close attention to the design of the operating room so that it feels comfortable. We pay excruciating attention to the audio because if, if you think about it in anesthesia, our ears are attuned to the different sounds. If the ventilator skips, if, if the patient tries to breathe against it, you can immediately pick that out. If the O2 sat is dropping and you're not even looking at the monitor, you probably know pretty closely what number you're hearing. Right. So we work very hard to maintain that degree of, of fidelity. And the only way to really appreciate that is to put the headset on and experience it. That's fantastic. Uh, well, we're going to talk a lot more about Simvana, what you've built and where it's headed. Before we get into all of that, I would like to back up and also talk about Prodigy. That's how I first came to know a little bit about who you are. My wife and I used Prodigy Anesthesia exclusively to study for anesthesia boards back in 2015. So tell us about, uh, you know, give us a little bit of a, you know, 30,000 foot view of Prodigy and how you got from that program, which is, you know, one of the most utilized board preparation programs in the nation to developing this virtual reality platform, Simvana? Certainly. Well, um, I had been a computer programmer since I was a little kid, just a little hacky nerd type. And when I graduated from uh, nursing school, I started doing um, computer programming for businesses on the side, and then I added computer animation. And so I was doing odd jobs for TV commercials, um, making extra money. When I went to uh, anesthesia school, I was like everybody focused on studying and had my flashcards with me everywhere. And then I went and took boards and that was actually my first computerized exam that I'd ever taken. And I realized at, when I walked out, you know, my heart was racing. Um, it was, felt mentally exhausting. I, I realized that I had not been prepared for computerized exams. I was so used to 
I can just flip back and revisit a question or go through my thought process. And you know, on boards, it's once you click next, it's gone. You you can't you can't do that. So I realized in that moment, that was 2004, that that's what I was going to do is create a board simulation. So I went home that day after boards and sketched out my ideas. Then I took six weeks off and I'm not I'm not doing anything. I've, I've been cramming so much. I'm not going to do anything related to anesthesia, but just get oriented to my new job. And then after six weeks, I would come home from work and I would start programming and I would start writing questions. And it took months and months and it started as an exam simulator. And now Prodigy has a complete course review, has 100 CEs for, for CRNAs. We now use a recent um, addition is that I incorporate machine learning um, in predictive analytics to help stratify students' risk so that right now faculty can see this. I haven't opened it up to students yet, but faculty get an indicator. It's like a red light, either red, yellow, or green to stratify their risk of board failure. And we use statistically based um, automated reme remediation. So we study everything that the student does, where they perform uh, well and where they perform poorly. And we can do a diagnostic say, this is what you need to study today at this moment. And it, it jostles and juggles the material around as they get better at these uh, certain topics. So it's really changed um, over the years. And now that we're on in the cloud, we can collect so much data. And I'm, I'm just now being able to use all of that data to really dig in and help students with their board performance. That's fantastic. I, w I was reading on your website, you maintain like thousands and thousands of subscriptions to uh, Prodigy on a rolling basis, like like 16,000 yes. or more people are, are using the system on a daily basis. Yes. And that so that includes um, SRNAs and CRNAs both. So. Right now, Prodigy, uh, even with with the CEUs, there's still exams involved for Class A uh, credits, as you know. So Prodigy processes, on average, about 50,000 exam questions a day. We store about 50,000 exam questions a day. And so over the years, it's just amassed into you know, millions of, of exam questions. So when we tell somebody, look, you're at the 71st percentile um, in, in this area, you are really, it's actually, you're in like the 71.82357 percentile. It's, it's very, very specific. Um, and it's a lot of data to manage. Um, but, you know, technology is getting better for, obviously, for handling large volumes of data. The analytics are now um, accessible to somebody like me who can sit down and learn a little bit of machine learning um, languages and, and work with that and really get something valuable out of all this data that's, or, Otherwise, we'd just be sitting there like a lump in a database. Yep, yep. Well, I, I appreciate your work over all of the years. Uh, so thank you so much for, for doing that. And also thank you for supporting uh, John Fratziani, who, uh, listeners, if you've been following the show, you'll remember that he was recently on the show and we talked about the role of artificial intelligence in anesthesia. Uh, and Peter, you opened up the back door of Prodigy for him to be able to grab some test questions from you and feed them to ChatGPT and see how ChatGPT did on Prodigy simulated board exams. That was very interesting. That that was I was I was excited to be a part of that when I because I was in a machine learning class at the time. So I was wrapping my head around all this and I was like, wow, I can't believe that you can actually do all this, that all of this stuff is available. And ChatGPT was in an earlier form than it is now. And I saw the comment on Facebook that John posted. Does anybody know where you can get, you know, exam, old exam questions? Because I'm interested in testing this against ChatGPT. And I messaged him immediately like, yes, you contact <laughs> me right now. This is going to be cool. This is, I'll help you. I'll yeah. give you whatever you want to do. This is just going to be me to be a part of. And it, it was really that the results that he got um, initially were, were really interesting because the chat GPT struggled in some areas yeah. and then it actually did better in some areas. And then they released a new version of chat GPT and he ran it again. And the results, it's a little frightening how, how powerful this, this technology is. Um, so in, in prodigy, the artificial intelligence we use is not that kind. So you don't have to worry about it studying you or, right. or trying to manipulate your behavior or anything like that. So we use a different form of AI and it was, it was really interesting to be a, to be a part of. And I think we're all seeing that AI is becoming um, integrated into just about everything or is planned to be integrated into just about everything. So I'm not sure how 
what everybody thinks about that. I'm not even entirely sure what I think about all the yeah. ramifications of that, but it's definitely going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Well, I think it's fascinating. You know, you are a, your career is a pivot point in and of itself from 2004 into, you know, I'm not sure when you plan on retiring, but you as a creator of one of the board simulation programs that is widely used in the United States and now Simvana, which I'm looking forward to chatting with you about, you know, and then the entry to the marketplace of generative AI programs. It's very interesting to think about, and John and I talked a little bit about this, about, you know, what the next 20 years are going to look like. Where are we going to end up? I think things like Prodigy and other, some of the other board prep programs have changed the way that SRNAs train and, and learn anesthesia. And I think Simvana is going to really open up uh, a new world for us as well. So tell us about how you got from Prodigy into thinking about virtual reality in terms of a training system. Sure, sure. So I didn't have any... Uh, I didn't have any prior background in VR, but it started in 2018 when a student emailed me with a question about mortality rates in anesthesia. What is mortality rate in anesthesia? I think he was actually probably supposed to be finding this information out on his own, but thought that he might might reach out for a little little cheat. So I told him, I said, well, it depends on the study. You know, it's like where you look, it's either one in 300,000 or one in a million. They kind of vary how they define what an anesthetic death is and, and what data they've collected. And he said, well, actually, what I was looking for is how has the risk of um, anesthetic death changed over the years? And what is it like in the rest of the world? I said, well, I, I don't know the answer to that, so I'll, but I'm, I'm curious now, too, so let me look that up. So I found out that approximately 80 years ago in the U.S., the risk of dying under anesthesia was about 1 in 160. I didn't realize that it was wow. that high then, so that was, um, that was frightening. So then I was looking at the World Health Organization information on different countries. So it's the, the risk of, of death in the US, Europe, and Japan, and modern countries is roughly roughly the same. Um, so due to things like uh, safer medications, better training, better monitoring, we've gone from one in 160 to about one in a million. So it's a tremendous change in safety and anesthesia over the last 80 years. In the modern world, those same uh, changes have not really taken place in more underdeveloped parts of the world. So I found out that in some areas of um, of sub-Saharan Africa, the risk of death is still about one in 160. So the past 80 years of technological developments and education and training that we have um, been able to benefit from has not has not had an impact in those countries and. So I started digging into that a little bit. I found a paper from the World Health Organization that was explaining this problem. And they said that the problem is that there's not enough trained providers in those areas. So whereas we generally have about 22 to 25 trained licensed anesthesia providers per 100,000 people in the, in the U.S., that's, that's what our average is. And so in those countries, it's, it's one per 100,000. Wow. At that time, in one country, there was only one trained um, anesthesia provider in the country. Wow. So the, the, the problem for that, and that includes, you know, what really hit me is that includes pediatric surgery. So I was reading about childhood anesthetic deaths. And when you have a child, uh, that sort of information hits you a little bit differently as a, as a greater emotional impact when you read it. So, um, the major problem that they had was a lack of education, access to education, um, to train providers to work in those areas. So I thought, well, what if I can, what if I can come up with something that would work as a way of educating someone in the foundations of anesthesia without requiring faculty, since they don't have any faculty. So I decided I'm going to give this two weeks. Um, I'll take sort of two weeks off from working on Prodigy. And see if I can come up with something, at least a mock-up. If I can make something happen in VR, then I'll keep working on it. If not, then it's just beyond me and it's it's a problem somebody else will have to solve. So after two weeks, I did have a very crude mock-up of an operating room. I had a patient in there. I was simulating the EKG in the O2 sat. Um, and I was able to make a simulation where the uh, you would lose the high-pressure oxygen supply to the room. And all you had to do is go around to the back of the machine and cut your backup oxygen tank on and simulation solves. Very, very simple, but it functioned. The problems that I was having, though, was 
things like cords, the anesthesia circuit, all of these things that would react with physics. I didn't know how to replicate those in VR. So they weren't even in there. They were absent. So I was at the um, neighborhood swimming pool talking with a neighbor. And, and I live in Huntsville, Alabama. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but this is a, a defense in rocket towns. So everybody here is, is a rocket scientist. Um, and so I was talking with my next door neighbor and uh, we were just having a margarita and we're like, you know, what do you do for a living? What, you know? And so I explained to him that I, I do anesthesia, but it's now an education company and I'm tinkering with this virtual reality thing and I'm struggling with it. He said, well, show it to me. But okay. So we came up to my office and he popped up, uh, popped on the headset and he said, yep, yep. He said, I see exactly what you're trying to do here. He said, we need to go to my office. <laughs> so the next thing I knew, I was before a board of directors for a half billion dollar defense company called Torch Technologies here in, in town. As it turns out, my next door neighbor is the senior manager. His name is Daryl Trousdale. He's the senior manager of a team of video game developers who do this exact same thing for the military. Well, there you go. So it was it was the weirdest coincidence. So while I was struggling trying to make this, I had the idea. I knew what I was trying to do, trying to accomplish this, but I didn't have the skills or expertise to do it well. And then, you know, right outside my back door is someone who leads a team of experts in this field. Wow. The artists and the programmers that are far beyond my skill level. So it's amazing to see. I, I was really embarrassed when I took my ugly mock-up after seeing what they could do. I was like, oh, I suck. This is horrible. I don't even want to show it to anybody. I don't even want you to don't look at this. But it was amazing that they, that from the developers all the way up to, to the board, they completely looked past the ugly of what I was doing and never even never even blinked and just saw the potential of what we could do together. And so it was it, they're they're great to work with. And uh, so that was it was they were welcoming. They really like to collaborate on projects like that. And so that was five years ago that we started that. And just last month, it's now been spun off as its own separate company. Un underneath their holding company. So we're now an official Symbana is an official business of its own. So it's sort of a proud moment to see it evolve. Well, uh, con congratulations. Evolve. I didn't realize that just happened last month. It it did. It did. So we were under the auspices of the defense uh, contractor uh, for a long time as this was sort of a pilot project as we were feeling things out. But um, they wanted to have an opportunity to enter a commercial space, um, which is very difficult if you're still under the umbrella of a defense company because you have different regulations about your business practices, right. who you can deal with and what you can do. So this enables uh, enables us to do business worldwide, which will be coming soon. Wow. So full circle, do you see, and I, I wanted to get to this a little bit later in the conversation, but do you see a future where Simvana is used in underdeveloped nations? That is my goal. In fact, um, if you recall in 2022, during COVID, you might remember that South Africa had sort of the second resurgence of COVID, and they went on yet another serious lockdown. Um, we were still still developing Simvana. It was in early stages, and they don't have a concept of nurse anesthesia there. They have medical officers that are trained in anesthesia. So one of their medical officers reached out to us and said, we can't even bring students into the operating room. I can't bring an anesthesia machine out. We don't have the machines to spare to teach them. Do you have anything now that would that would work? And we said, well, let, let's just see if we can make this work. So we rapidly put together the cloud-based system and deployed it in um, South Africa. So they sent back videos of them using it, which was really gratifying to see. So there it was in a place that did not have an anesthesia machine to teach with, and we pr provided them one and VR. So yet the... Uh, one of the goals is, of course, to deliver this to educational facilities throughout the world, but also to get it to the point where it is a standalone system that we could ship to a country that does not have access to these resources and improve the quality of their education and hopefully improve the number of providers in those areas. That's fantastic. I, I can only imagine, too, the link back with you know, where you started Prodigy in 2004 as a board exam simulation, uh, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, filling that gap that you, I know there's been a lot of discussion within the nurse anesthesia community about 
where ongoing licensing will be, where testing will look like down the road? I mean, do you see a role of possible VR-based simulation in the ongoing certification of CRNAs? I, I, I do. We've explored that some. We are not to the point yet where we could execute complex simulations. We're still in the stage where we're designing lessons, teaching anesthesia as we're building the components needed to um, needed to deliver the anesthesia. Um, so as you know, it's not really fair to, to and this is me saying that, I make a, a living off of this in, this exam that we have to take. It's not really fair to assess somebody's ability to perform uh, a tactile relational skill set, um, the performance of anesthesia based on the multiple choice exam. It's it's not. And so I remind people that with Prodigy, I am not teaching you how to deliver anesthesia. I'm teaching you how to pass an exam. That's that's, that's all I'm doing. And they are two completely different, different things. If you look at someone delivering anesthesia and you look at somebody sitting at a computer taking a test, they don't even look like they're remotely the same activity. <laughs> well, so uh, how I mean, could course. it be? Yeah, right. How, how could it be? But we have to use those tests because they have to be scalable for the volume of providers that have to be assessed each year. What else, what else are you going to do? So right now, that's it. However, I do see that Symbana could be a way to demonstrate your competence in an area without having to reduce it to these exams. Maybe, or maybe it would be a combination of the two. Um, so I, I do see that as, as a possibility as this evolves, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the practical things. So how is Symvana currently available to users? Uh, we've talked a little bit about where, where you want to see it go. Uh, but yeah, how is it currently available? So if, um, if somebody goes to Simvana.com right now, as particularly faculty, we're kind of focused on the schools right now because they have the logistical resources available. Um, our system right now is tethered to a computer because we wanted high fidelity graphics and the physiology and physics simulations that I can explain a little bit require a stronger processor, stronger graphics card than is available in a headset. So if you think about a standalone headset is actually just a cell phone processor built in it. So we have it tethered to a computer. So the schools have those resources available. So we wanted to start with the schools. Um, we schedule demos. Um, sometimes we go in person to demonstrate it. Or like you said, we've demonstrated it at the um, ADCE conference. And so the schools will purchase it and set it up in their simulation lab. Because a lot of times those schools already have for their nursing department, other virtual reality programs for general clinical nursing. But we're about to have a free trial here in a couple of weeks. We'll send out mailers to students because we started getting interest from students who wanted to try it on their own. It's typically gamers who already have all this equipment and um, they're keyed up and they, they want to try it. I want to I want to try this now. I don't want to go through my school. I want to use it. So yeah. we said, OK, we've got to come up with a solution for these um, early adopters. And so we'll be releasing that um, soon where you can. Go online, download it. You'll get to try about 20 of the lessons that are that are built inside and get a feel for VR. Um, and we're already getting interest without even trying yet internationally. I think people are, you know, educators from around the world are just Googling anesthesia and VR and we're starting to come up. So we're having to address some of these issues. How do you do business with someone in another country? Um, and we're having to, you know, work through some of those problems and 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 solve them as we go. It's sort of Sort of a learning process. Well, right. So you've said uh, on the website that uh, there's, quote, a lot going on under the hood of Simvana, <laughs> which is probably <laughs> an understatement. So tell us about, you know, a little bit more of the, the development of the program, what it took to bring virtual reality simulation system to the nursing anesthesia community. Uh, maybe you could do that through what kinds of domains and experiences are available in this VR world. Sure. So when um, when my neighbor, uh, uh, Daryl, and I started talking about this, we got really excited. I said, can you believe what we could do? I said, right now, there's that you have to practice on real people or on mannequins, and that's it's sort of fake. But we could have you know, these scenarios where the patient's in malignant hyperthermia, and there's an airway fire, and the power goes off, and, and all this stuff. We could simulate all of it. We were all excited, and we, were, we stopped and said, okay, so what do we need to do first? Well, we need to build an operating room. And we need to, need to build an anesthesia machine. And as we were building the anesthesia machine, it's one of the advantages of working with 
a firm like that is that there's about a thousand engineers over there. So when they want to build an anesthesia machine, it's a complete physics simulation. It's not just knobs and switches. They replicate the flow and pressure of gases through virtual pipes and tubes, and all of that interfaces at the patient. So it's a real, a real anesthesia machine. And as we were teaching that, we did to shake out all of the physics, we do a complete machine checkout. So that's built in as a simulation. You can do to practice doing a full machine checkout. And I took a step back and I thought, you know, but what if something in the machine checkout is wrong? This is an opportunity to teach somebody every component of this anesthesia machine from the scavenger to how the flow meters work. And so then we said, okay, let's take a step back and let's start teaching everything. So we started building lessons. I think there's about 150 lessons just on the anesthesia machine. Wow. For example, it might be the CO2 absorber. And because I was thinking, I'm always in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this needs to be standalone. I want to be able to send this headset to sub-Saharan Africa and it do its job without, without me being there. So we, we start from the very basics. What is a CO2 absorber? How does it work? We present some of the foundational information. And then we just have them identify it in VR, go and touch it in the room. So now you know what it is and where it is. And we just step forward a bit at a time and progress forward until they're then at a challenge where the patient is um, experiencing the effects of an exhausted CO2 absorber, and they have to solve it on their own. And we keep stacking these challenges together, sort of like an escape room, where you have an objective to set up an anesthetic, but you've got to solve all these problems before you can do so. And you need to sequence this out. So they, it might just be start a start a CVO two percent anesthetic, um, you know, or one percent, and use fifty percent nitrous. But you know, there's breakers flipped on the machine. They they're you know, high pressure oxygen sources disconnected and all these problems that they solve. So we're teaching problem solving. And now we're doing that with intravenous drugs. Um, for example, how and when do you use, say, esmolol, ephedrine, um, neosinephrine? When is, when is one appropriate? And then we put them in challenges where their goal is to return um, a deviated cardiac status back to within a few percent of baseline. And they have to learn how, how to develop the drugs um, accordingly. So it's interesting because there is a lot going on under the hood. There's not just the physiology simulation um, that that I was describing. There's all the math behind it. And um, so we run a complete four compartment model. So as you're turning the anesthetic dial, I can pull that four compartment model up and show you how it's accumulating in the body as you're turning the dials or adjusting the flow rate. So it's like a laboratory experiment, only... um, on a, on a human subject, but nobody gets hurt. So I'll tell them, turn the SIVO to 2% and leave the oxygen at one liter a minute, start a timer, and then stop it when you reach the, the target level that we're looking at. Now let's start it all over again. Let's cut the flow rate up to 10 liters a minute, start the timer again. And, and then we'll ask them, how did that change? How did that, yeah. that, that now let's turn the SIVO up to 6% and start the timer. So we're able to essentially experiment. It sounds horrible that you know what I'm doing, that, it, that you could experiment on a person like that, but to get their vital signs that appear on the monitor, if you think about what goes into your blood pressure, well, it's SVR, cardiac output, all those things, and we're calculating those so I can pull them up and I can demonstrate, turn the nitrous on, and now let's pull up, we use sliders, I don't want to overwhelm people with numbers and you know how those units are, are awful, so we use sliders, let's look at the CMRO2, the intracranial pressure and the cerebral blood flow, and let's see what's happening as you're turning the nitrous up, as this progresses. Let's compare it to SIBO and DES, and now let's see what happens. So you're, getting, you're giving people the opportunity to see these physiologic changes positioned right over the patient as they're turning knobs and dials. So it's, it's really, when you talk about uh, like learning theories and like, Holbes experiential learning, how you're learning as you do. You really, it, you really are. It's it's really exciting. It's it's neat to be able. <laughs> it's neat to be able to teach this way. <laughs> uh, it's mind blowing. I mean, to think back, we've got people that are still practicing anesthesia that remembered when the pulse oximeter came out, right? And yeah, and that's what I was getting at. I don't know if we were recording or, or not. We were talking a little bit before we got going, but it's 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 fascinating to imagine. You know, you starting Prodigy, a board simulation computer-based program in 2004, and then uh, Simvana here in 2018, where 
anesthesia education, where anesthesia practice will be uh, in, in developed nations at, at, at least by, and even un, you know underdeveloped nations by being able to ship this technology out, where it will be by the end of uh, the careers of the folks who are just starting anesthesia. It, it really is absolutely mind-blowing and remarkable. So uh, it, it's fascinating to talk about. And, and I wanted to touch on, you know, you were saying it's not, you know, just the mechanics of the software, the core anesthesia content, the physiology, the physics that are baked into this program, but you are also building these learning modules around some learning theory. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So I had already mentioned uh, Kolb's experiential learning theory, and that's the one that everybody sort of defaults to with um, like simulation education or just about any kind, particularly VR, um, where he said, you know, you, you basically you learn by by doing and you're starting to take, you know, develop theories about how things work as you're acting them out. And then finally, you know, the last step is you're starting to experiment with these these theories. And now you're starting to learn as you experiment with the ideas that that you're starting to to form about how things work. And we actually play off of that because at the end of every lesson, we encourage them, hey, take your time, play around with this. Do just experiment till you get a feel with it and don't move on until until you're ready. So we have objectives that they can't they can't complete the lesson until they complete the objectives but they can do whatever they want. It's, it's an open world. So if we're teaching phenylephrine, we're asking them to give a little bit to the patient and let's see how, how the blood pressure reacts. Um, they might give the whole syringe. They, they can. They'll see the effects of that. At some point, if they have uh, just gone off the rails, we'll, so we allow them to color outside the lines as much as, as they want to a degree. One, um, you, we don't allow a patient to die. We exit the simulation. We're not going to go that far. And if they do something that's administer a dose that, okay, this, you're not learning anything here. That's a, that's a horrific dose. We're exiting out. Let's pull out. Let's start again. Let's be reasonable about you know what, what yeah. we're doing here. Um, but we give them the opportunity to explore. And the fact that it is an open world where you can do anything you want allows for that. Um, so the other theories that we use is, um, is cognitive load theory. And that's kind of, if you go, goes back to why do we have a seven digit phone number? Because they realize, because you can only remember seven bits of information. So it's kind of geared towards thinking about how much information you can hold in your working memory. And if you overload somebody with too much stimulus, they stop learning. Um, they, they're just now just trying to process the fire hose of information that's coming at them. So that's why we introduce things in very small bites, very tiny sections. And in a lot of cases, I'll pull stuff out of the operating room. Like, the patient does not need to be in here for you to learn, you know, how to change the CO2 absorber right now. We're just focused on the CO2 absorber. Let's get the patient out. I don't want the distraction so we can focus on this one object. And then we'll bring them back in when we have a challenge and you've already sort of mastered that. concept. So we step through things in very slow, tiny, deliberate steps, thinking that if this was someone who's never encountered this concept, I want to make sure that they can process it correctly and so we'll test it on engineering interns who have no healthcare background. Yeah. And I'll say, go through this lesson. And at the end, I'll, I'll discuss it with them. And the final question is, do you think that if you and I went into the operating room right now and I handled everything else and all you had to focus on was the CO2 absorber, could you handle that? Yeah. Okay. Then I've done, I've nice. done what I set out nice. to do. Yeah. I, I love your thoughts on the cognitive load and how you've pared down these lessons to focus on specific tasks. You've got this really funny blog post on Simvana's website where you talk about information overload, uh, and and you kind of talk about you, you have like a like a mock up script of the first three minutes of one of your first anesthetics, and it's hilarious. After working with students for so long and and working with preceptors of students for so long. Uh, so many years, this sounds strikingly familiar where you think about all of the things that are told to a brand new student uh, on their first day uh, walking into the operating room, you know, hold the mass tighter, tighten the APL valve, let up a little bit, check your flow rates, you know, and you just like, you know, hit, hit, the, hit the blood pressure. Oh, they're allergic to penicillin. Oh my gosh, the surgeon's almost ready to cut. What, are you ready for timeout? Do you see the, like, it's just this overwhelming amount of, amount of information but that's our that's our reality. Where you know, in, in I think in Simvana's um, in in one of your demo videos, you say, you know, 
anesthesiology has been a profession where we have learned through apprenticeship, uh, on the job training. I mean, there, there is the, there, there, there are the, the didactic phase of, of learning, but when you go to the operating room, it really is on the job training, uh, which is a very challenging environment to learn in. And so it, it seems like Simvana really hits this nice environment where you can experientially learn about these things in a controlled setting that is safe. It's safe for patients. It's, it's psychologically safe for the learner. You're not going to get yelled at by a mean preceptor. It's safe to fail. And then it's also the cognitive load piece is, is controlled to where you're not, uh, you're not overloading. And if you need to slow down, you can slow down and really focus on, on learning something. That's true. And I think if, if all of us, any of us that are practicing anesthesia, think back to your first day, you know, it's, it's scary. You know, like, like, what did you learn today? I, I, I know that I parked in the wrong spot and I had to move my car. And I remember where the bathroom on the first floor is and that, you know, and that's basically all you come home with, you know, it's so, it is so much. Um, and you, you can't process all of that at one time. You, you simply can't. And I think even when you're taking students um, who are new to the operating room as, as a preceptor, I think that, that you need to be aware of that and think about that and give them small tasks. Um, the, the instructional design that we use is uh, called 4CID, and it's, it's really good for complex procedural training. Um, and basically, it comes down to, I'm going to give you a little bit of information, and I'm going to let you complete part of this task. Right? You know, I'm not going to overwhelm you with the whole thing. I just want you to do part of this. So say, for example, it was a central line um, that someone, you know, that's, that's one of the things that you're teaching is, you know, first, let them focus on how to open it um, and get the, get the tray prep, get the patient prep before they have to focus on actually doing it. Because there's a procedure to doing that. Let them get comfortable with a few other things first so that they feel more confident when they move on to the next step. So it really is, it really is about letting people experience anesthesia without fear, with, without fear. But I will tell you, I, I, I've described that it's, it's hard to explain what VR is like if you've never tried it, but you become so immersed in this environment that I get a little bit anxious when like yeah. I'm testing the blood pressure. I'm intentionally testing a low blood pressure so I can test out, say, the neosinephrine syringe and the response to it. I'm like, I can't take this anymore. Like, <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, I can't. I'm sitting here. I'm staring at 60 over 30 and my heart rate is going up. Yeah. And this is just a simulated patient. Or when we're testing out the audio for the O2 set and I have to let it go down so I can make sure that the audio is. So I'll, I'll disconnect the anesthesia circuit. And I'm like. I've got this virtual patient here that I'm asphyxiating. You know, I'm yeah. Yeah. It's so it's it's right. weird how drawn in you get in the story just because your senses are being immersed by something that isn't real but seems real. Which is which is wonderful for learning. It brings that to life. I can remember learning the anesthesia machine. I can be remember being tested on the anesthesia machine and I had never seen one before. You know, so I'm looking at charts and graphs about high pressure systems and low pressure systems and it's these schematic drawings and and then you got to remember all the pieces and parts and how and I'm like I've never touched one. I've never seen one used on a patient. I've never uh, you know, it's just like, it's, it's mind blowing. Uh, so yeah, I can, I can imagine, uh, you know, having that environment where it seems very real, uh, can help bring those lessons home and, and your story about, you know, uh, having a physiologic response to the stress. I mean, you watch any compelling movie or when I've taught at anesthesia conferences, I, sometimes I've shown a video of, of a, uh, simulated airway emergency with actors who are responding to a failed airway. And so you can hear in the video, you know, the pulse oximeter going down and you can hear the tension in the voice of the people doing the simulation and watching, you know, a crowd of a couple hundred CRNAs squirm in their chairs as they're watching this video. And they just like someone silence the alarms, you know, but you have a physiologic response. I can only imagine that that is heightened when you're in a full 3d virtual reality world. It it is. I would love for uh, someone to do, you know, put put EKG leads or maybe a galvanic skin response device or something on on someone in VR, and put them in a stressful situation and see to what degree do they does the learner have a physiologic response? And yeah. I, I think that if if you start to experience that, do you know that 
you're engaging them in a real story. Right. That, you know, as this is unfolding, they believe that they oh, yeah. are a part yeah. of it. That's interesting. Well, let's hit a couple other key points. So you're seeing you're marketing this right now primarily to programs, to universities who have the capacity in terms of a technological uh, background. What What's the typical cost that universities could expect? Can you talk about that at all? So I, I can. And we have um, a cloud system that has costs associated with it with setting that up. So you have data transaction usage. So we have um, the school has a $5,000 a year fee that's to help us offset the, the cloud computing costs. And then from there, it's uh, $4.99 per student per year. Okay. Um, so there's, there's a cost associated with that, but the costs that we're trying to help people offset are the massive costs. And if you've done this, you're, you're familiar with it. The massive cost of doing traditional mannequin simulation where you know, these mannequins are sometimes over $100,000. You have uh, software and experienced practitioner to control the blood pressure and the heart rate as, as the learners are in, engaging with it. Someone to design those scenarios um, and the actual equipment to maintain. You have an actual anesthesia machine and a lot of facilities don't have the infrastructure to simulate, say, high, high pressure gas sources or a vacuum system. Yeah. And we're able to simulate all of all of that. So we're trying to help offset some of those costs as well with this for the schools. I mean, I, th- I think in, you know, in all honesty, there's still something uh, valuable when you can go into a physically replicated sim center and, and touch physical knobs and get get that extra spatial awareness of what's happening. But in terms of the cost savings, I mean, you know, looking at... Um, if, if, a, if a university is going to set up a, a fully functional simulated operating room with piped in gas, you know, and the regulation and the infrastructure, I mean, you're talking millions of dollars. To millions, get millions, like millions of dollars. You're, you're exactly right. And, and I have, I have visited several of these centers and they, they are stunning. They are stunning. It's a lot to maintain. It has, um, it's, it's obviously not a one-time cost, uh, to, to maintain a, a setting like that. Um, so we do offer the advantage of a complete infrastructure of an operating room. We can add, modify it, turn things off, um, make things happen within VR. Uh, the disadvantage that you can imagine with any VR is um, the complete loss of, of tactile sensation. Mm-hmm. So we're addressing airway management right now, but there's really no way to simulate the effect of performing laryngoscopy in VR, not, not the physical sensations of your hands of opening the jaw. So we go through those actions in VR, but since we're not teaching that, we're more incorporating that into the sequence. So, so if we're doing an induction, I want you to know where these steps fit into the sequence because we're teaching a thinking process, a, a decision trees. Yeah. So we're re- really focused on the decision-making process of anesthesia and being comfortable with the environment itself. The, the traditional simulation is, and really still to some degree on, on live patients is where you really learn those tactile skills. Right. Talk a little bit more about the user experience. What are some of the aspects that really excite you right now? I know this is in in constant development and there's updates coming, but what are some things that are really uh, getting you stoked right now? The, the things that I love the most, well, the first is I really get a kick the first time we put a headset on somebody who's never done VR and it's all, it's always the same. It's wow. And <laughs> you see that, you see an expression and so that's, I, I love, I love doing that. So our, our friends and neighbors, you know, whoever I'm like, you, you've just got to try it. You've got to try this. Um, so I, I love seeing someone being put in, into a different environment and realize this feels, this feels real. Um, and, the things that we're able to do now with the patient that, that I mentioned before, bringing up the physiology and um, there are things that we didn't even plan on doing at first. It was just as I was looking through the program that I used to test the math for the for the physiology simulations. And as I was coming down to the I was looking upwards from from the blood pressure and I realized all these values that are of use that we can just pull up and display like in the real world. Yeah, you you can have. Um, you know, swan gants and get a lot of this information, but you're not going to have that on most of your patients. Right. Um, but here we can, we can pull that up and you have access to that, that information. Um, so being able to bring those experiences, 
it's into into part of the learning experience is is I think going to be transformative. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Uh, I think one one of the things you mentioned you mentioned your neighbor again. Uh, Huntsville is probably one of the few places in in the United States where we can say, you know, my neighbor, the defense contractor genius who's got a lab of like computer ex like it's one of the only places where you can probably be like, you know, my neighbor, the PhD guy. That I I think it's got more PhDs uh, per capita than anywhere in the United States. The last I read, it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting town. The people that you meet here that you just stumble across and. You know, a lot of people can't tell you what they do because of non-disclosure agreements and government right. contracts. But you know, when when you start talking to people and find out what they do, you're like, "What are you working on?" It's a it's a laser, like, like to uh, target. <laughs> what kind of laser? And and you get a little bit deeper. I'm like, "Oh no, you make James Bond lasers, like the kind that you put." Yes, that's what we do. I'm like, I didn't even know the you know that sort of stuff was real. But it's 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 a very interesting town. Um, because everybody's doing something interesting. And yeah. so we, we engage in collaborations. Um, and that's really neat to meet all these people who are doing research in other areas. Um, and you have some overlap. And so it, it just becomes an interesting dynamic in this town, right. being able to, to share and collaborate with right. people that have such a wide skill set. Right, right. Well, speaking of PhDs, you're, you're, you're currently working on your own right now. Is that correct? What, what, that's, what are you focusing correct. on? Um, so as, as you can imagine, I'm, I'm focusing on VR. My, uh, my PhD will be in health professions education with focus on healthcare simulation. And I'm from, uh, at Massachusetts General Hospital Institute for Health Professions. And I started at, uh, UAB. I got a, a graduate degree in healthcare simulation there because I did realize I really need to learn how this is, how this is done. I've been in a different area of education. And there is a format, there are principles to how you should train people in simulation. So I wanted to really develop a, a good foundational background in how simulation is performed and designed. And then I wanted to continue on um, with the PhD um, with a focus on virtual reality. Of course, um, my singular focus is really on cyber sickness. And so in the past few decades, one of the biggest hindrances to the adoption of VR in mainstream education was the motion sickness that people will feel. And that's due to um, sort of the disparity between the information your eyes are receiving from the headset and the information that your middle ear is not receiving to corroborate that information. It's called vection. When you have this optical flow, this optical information coming at you and your middle ear doesn't have anything your brain is trying to reconcile to um, that cyber sickness. And um, that happens, that still happens in a significant portion of the population. As a technology improves, it's a little bit less. But, um, you know, some people attribute that to something called the poison theory, where they think it's an evolutionary adaptation where, you know, a Neanderthal picks up the wrong kind of mushroom, eats it, and it makes that disequilibrium between the senses causes him to regurgitate it before more absorbs in his bloodstream. I don't know if that's actually true or not, but that's what some people attribute it to. Um, so I'm focused on um, finding all of the design patterns and the technological um, things that as a VR designer, you can implement to mitigate cyber sickness. And yep. so we already implement several of them. Um, one is as you're moving in VR, we it's called dynamic field of view reduction. It's kind of like a vignette kind of, kind of reduces what you're seeing. So um, you still have that uh, that disparity between the two senses, but now you have less visual information going right. to the brain. And we also will add reference grids sometimes when you're moving, and it gives your brain a little bit more visual um, reference to how you're moving and where you're moving. Um, it's kind of like in the back seat of the car, you can get car sick very easily, whereas you don't if you're in the, in the front seat of the car. And it's because you have these frames that give you a visual reference of how you're moving, where you're moving. And your brain is able to use that information and yeah. ignore um, the disparity that it's getting from right. the middle ear. So right. it's kind of an interesting, interesting science that, uh, you know, boring for anybody else. But once, <laughs> if you're in this business, no, if you're in this business, you, you kind of have to be interested in this. It, it's fascinating. You, when you started to say uh, at the very top of the conversation, when you said that your background was in computer programming and animation, uh, a book I'm listening to right now is Ed Catmull's Creativity, Inc., 
So the, yes. you know, the founder of Pixar, and Pixar. he was talking about, uh, working in the early nineties with Steve jobs and some of the other folks and in, in developing computer-based animation and just realizing that, you know, computers can keep an image crystal clear even when the images move, but the human eye does not like that. So they had to develop the idea of blurring images that are moving because that's how your brain typically would process. Uh, like if you're driving down the car, you're not seeing all of the trees crystal clear because there's movement in your peripheral vision. So, so creating that on a digital screen with pixels was something that had to get developed because that's how the human brain and the eye processes information. So the same thing in, in virtual reality, you've got to, you got to keep the technology in pace with how the brain processes information for people to have an enjoyable experience. It's you're, you hit the nail on the head with that. It's really interesting that when you're in VR, the thing that you really appreciate is greater detail. Now, this looks so real. But then once you start moving, your brain, like you said, does not like that detail. And so dynamic blurring is something that you can implement if someone's moving at a certain speed to soften that, that information. And I think it may be a little bit uh, like cognitive load theory that your brain is being bombarded with too much visual information at one time. And it prefers to blur some of that um, so that it's not overwhelmed. Because um, that will uh, increase detail with motion actually contributes to that nausea. Yeah. That people will experience. Yeah. Yeah. So where do you see uh, Simvana in the next three to five years? Um, in the next three to five years, I, I, I know that we will begin to enter other areas of healthcare um, because my background um, in nursing, that's one of the first areas that we would, we would enter in general nursing um, specialties like critical care, which if you think about it, um, critical care nursing is not a huge technological leap from anesthesia since we already have some of the monitors and similar equipment. It would be an easier transition to that type of, of teaching. Um, emergency medicine, combat medicine, um, since we you know, work with a, a Department of Defense contractor, they're always thinking about what can, what can we do to help warfighters? How can you help save lives? And so combat medicine is an area that we might enter. And also, um, as I told you that right now, because of the hardware requirements that we have to do this simulation, we're tethered, or the headset is tethered to um, a laptop or a desktop computer. You've probably seen announcements of this new headset and that new headset. Meta and Apple are kind of squaring off, and they're getting more and more powerful about every six months. So they're actually kind of outdoing Moore's Law the way it did with computers. They're keeping a faster pace. So with within the next few years, I think the headset will be powerful enough um, that we'll be able to lose the tether and let people go completely wild. So I definitely yeah. think that that is, is coming fairly soon. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, I want to ask you, you know, you're someone who spends a lot of time thinking about how to train anesthesia providers. You're thinking about that on a global scale in underdeveloped nations, which, uh, I think is, is fascinating. If you could fast forward, you, know, you think back to where you started 20 years ago, leaving, you know, your first computer-based test, which was your board exam to be a CRNA until now you're, you've created this virtual reality, uh, training program. Fast forward 20 years, where do you think, like, what do you think anesthesia education is going to look like? And it may, maybe, maybe in an ideal state, I know there's always changes so hard for people to undergo and, and with all due respect to people who are, who are heavily involved in education, but in an ideal state, perhaps, wh what would you like to see anesthesia education look like 20 years from now? I, th I think that there will still be um, some of the same information media that we use now. There'll still be textbooks. There'll still be studies. I think that, um, I think that VR will change the way we learn. Um, for example, if you think about Think about a particularly bad case. Everybody has one or more where you were in a situation that brought your entire skill set to bear just to get through this, to bring a patient through this safe, safely. So if you think about that experience, um, whether it was a malignant hyperthermia or a pulmonary embolism, fill, fill in the blank that you had to deal with. Right now, these tend to get summed up as a, as a case study. It becomes a little snippet in a journal that you can read about. Rather than a case study, I'd like to take that experience that you had, that unique experience, 
and share it through the world with a case. I would want to replicate. Tell me everything that happened. I'm going to redesign what experienced, um, what you experienced. Um, and then we can all share that exact same case. And we might be able to even try different things and see how, how could we have recognized the event sooner? Does that, would that impact um, maybe safety regulations or protocols that we have? Um, but I think that the key, the key to virtual reality in the future, the way I see it, is that these experiences that we have in the operating room where we're learning how to deal with complex problems then become shareable experience that other people can live through and learn from as well. That's fantastic. I love to hear it. Uh, well, Peter, it has been absolutely fascinating to chat with you. I wonder if you have anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners before we go. Uh, sure. I'd, I'd suggest go to Simbana.com or go to YouTube and type in the word Simbana, S-I-M-B-A-N-A, and you'll see videos of, of what we're up to. Sometimes it's just me talking about problem I'm, I'm working through or how I'm how we're trying something out that's different. Um, but follow the process. If you have um, ideas, or, you know, suggestions, uh, feel free to, to reach out to us. We're, we're always open to ideas. We don't always have enough hands on deck to execute all of them, but we're always listening. That's fantastic. Well, Peter Stallo, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What up, y'all? I wanted to drop a reminder that if you're a CRNA looking for a great team to invest yourself in your career in, check us out at Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine. While the clinical opportunities would challenge you and the location is one of the best, our people and sense of community are truly what set us apart. Reach out if you want to learn more.